You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Adverse drug reactions, or ADRs, are a serious issue in healthcare today. The pharmacist is the last line of defense to help prevent ADRs. A rising role of the pharmacist is the specialist who focuses on our children. Pediatric pharmacy ensures safe and effective drug use and optimal medication therapy outcomes in children up to 18 years of age. Currently, there are more than 1,450 board-certified pediatric pharmacy specialists, known as BPS. If you're interested in this expanding field of pharmacy, this podcast is for you. All right, everyone, let's give it up for our host. Pharmacy Podcast Nation on August 30th, we released a brand new podcast, The Pediatric Pharmacist Review. I'm excited that we're back for episode two with our host, Dr. Allison Chung. How have you been doing, Allison? I'm good. Thank you, Todd. I'm like, excellent. It's a special month we're launching episode two in. This is National Pharmacist Month. We know that pharmacists are experts in medication management. They provide this guidance that we desperately need throughout our communities, especially during a time where we have more stress on the relationship between physicians, pharmacists, and patients during this pandemic. I want to give a shout out to all of our pharmacists on National Pharmacist Month and just let you know how much we care about you and how much we want to help you. If there's anything that our network can ever do for you, please reach out to us for lots of ideas, things like career choices or technology references or even um, opportunities to, to move into a consultancy role. The role of the pediatric pharmacist is more necessary than ever before. And today it's exciting to know that, that we're gonna be talking about the relevance of well-being and what the, what does that mean? There's There's been federal statistics of child well-being and the rates of adolescent being depressed have increased the percentage of children living in households with um, with many problems and behavioral issues that are kicked out of that. This is intense. So the Pharmacy Podcast Network is dedicated to the health of our patients uh, through the empowerment and the support that we give to our pharmacists. So Allison, the show is all yours. I can't wait to to hear about your guest in, in our next um, our next episode upcoming. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm super excited for my guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Farrington, and she's a clinical pharmacist at New Hanover Regional Medical Center in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, I'm not going to go over her past degrees and what she's done because that's something we're going to talk about. But um, her clinical practice is pretty much focused on pediatric care and general pediatrics. And I need to congratulate her because she was also recently elected as the American College of Clinical Pharmacy president-elect. I'm so excited to have her as a guest. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Allison. Appreciate the warm welcome. So today, um, you and I are really going to spend our podcast time talking about the importance of pediatric pharmacy, pediatric pharmacists. Um, and both of us are going to go over just our paths on how we got interested in pediatrics for other people to maybe learn about um, how to get into pediatrics and what the steps are and things like that. So why don't we start with you telling me a little bit about your path? 
to pediatrics? Well, my path is a little bit different than yours because of our age differences. <laughs> because when I went to pharmacy school and then went, I got a bachelor's of pharmacy and then I had to go back to get my doctor of pharmacy degree. And at that time, there was only maybe one or two pediatrics um, pediatric programs in the United States. So I did what was referred to as a two-year clinical pharmacy residency. And within that two years, I did 14 months of pediatrics. So technically, I don't have a pediatric specialty residency, even though my training per se mm -hmm. would be very similar to someone being a, doing a PGY-1 plus a PGY-2. Um, so a little bit different pathway. And then I went to the University of Iowa to work with Dr. Rich Left to do a pediatric fellowship because um, my I was interested in research and academia. And my path changed a little bit because at the time, about two weeks before I went to the University of Iowa, Dr. Roberts, who was the MD, PhD we were supposed to work with, left the University of Iowa to become department chair at UVA. And so I just stayed a year at Iowa. Um, but I think it was a good year because it really taught me that even though I like doing research, to work in a lab um, takes a lot of your time and I preferred taking care of patients. So I kind of learned that I like doing research, but probably clinical research was more of my passion than bench research. And that I do a better job of working with bench researchers now because when they're having problems with something, I've been there. And I know what it's like. And so I, I'm a better coworker, I guess. But I think even though I only did that for a year, it was good to show me that my passion was really more on the patient care side. Yeah, that makes sense. I did, for those of you out there, I did, um, I guess it's more what's considered contemporary, I would say, on the path to pediatrics. Um, so I did a five year, I did five years undergrad as well at UC San Diego. And then I actually did five years of pharmacy school as well, because at the time I went to pharmacy school, they had the um, what's it called early admissions. Like they would accept people right out of high school and you could get into pharmacy school. But the first two years was a lot of just science. Um, and then the rest was uh pharmacy and then we also have the path where you decide if you want to go PharmD or BS in like your third year I think it was god I forgot but I went to a pharmacy school at University of Missouri Kansas City and yes you have to decide at like your third or fourth year I think if you wanted to go BS and PharmD and then that's when I decided to go PharmD or doctor of pharmacy um, and then I also decided I wanted to do a residency in a PGY-1 or postgraduate year one residency because I wanted that general foundation of knowledge, even though from my fourth year, I knew I wanted pediatrics or I was actually trying to decide between pediatrics and oncology. Or oh, that's for my two as well. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, so I was trying to decide between those two and I decided, okay, I need to do a general residency to figure out if I wanted to go straight into peds or if I wanted to go hemonc or if I wanted peds hemonc. <laughs> so that's where, when I looked for my residencies, I made sure to look that it had all those three options. So I did a PGY-1 at University of Maryland in Baltimore. And then actually, sort of like you, I ended up doing a fellowship instead of a PGY-2 in pediatrics. So most people will take the path of a PGY-2 in pediatrics after their PGY-1. But um, for me, I decided to do a fellowship 
also. And my fellowship was at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, with Mike Reed and Jeff Blummer. And it was also clinical research. So like you, Elizabeth, I was kind of like, I don't really want to do bench research. I like the clinical research. And I still wanted more clinical. So my fellowship was actually not heavy research. It was very heavy with the clinical aspect where we actually served almost like a consult service mm-hmm. for the toxicology. Um, Cause it was a, it was actually technically a clinical pharmacology uh, toxicology pediatric fellowship. And, and I you actually, took MDs in that program, yes, well, right? Yes. That, yes, that was an awesome program. Those two yeah. Like, so I worked right along MDs who were also fellows with me, which was very cool. Yeah, it was very cool. I thought the experiences was great because we were like a toxicology consult service. So it was heavy clinical. And then I still did research projects on the side. I think it's interesting because when I went to pharmacy school, I started in 1980. So we at the University of North Carolina, you could apply in her your second year of college. Um, and it was a two plus three. So if you got I think ours was like that too. Um, right in. So you had you had certain prerequisites you had to meet and the basic science and they looked at what grades you made in those basic science courses and then you did three years of pharmacy school and you got a bachelor's of science and as I was finishing up my BS degree in pharmacy um, the University of North Carolina was just starting a doctor of pharmacy program and so I decided I wanted to go somewhere that was established and so Mm -hmm. I ended up at the University of Kentucky um, where I did um, my PharmD degree, and then I stayed there to do the, the clinical pharmacy residency, which at that point was a two-year program. So, um, I mean, I learned so much there, and I wouldn't trade it, even though we we had in-house on-call, and yes, I, I remember, remember that. all that stuff from being on-call, but I did do 14 months in that two years in pediatrics, and um, I've always loved pediatrics, so um, it really sparked my passion, and um, the what the Peds um, PharmD at the University of Kentucky uh, knew Dr. Leff, and so he had done his um, program with Milop Nahada. But at that point, Dr. Nahada was only taking a fellow every other year, and this was the non-year, mm-hmm. and so that program wasn't open. And so um, that's how I really ended up at the University of Iowa, which I, I learned so much there. Um, I wouldn't trade the year for anything, but um, you know, sometimes the program you want to do doesn't have an opening. And so that kind of changes your path a little as well. Yes, uh, but I went to three excellent programs, which I think really gave me, a, um, I think your point you made initially when you said you went to UKMC and then you did um, when you went to Maryland, I think um, I am a pro, um, strong pro, um, believer because I had a PGY2 of my own for 17 years that I would prefer to take a a resident from a strong PGY-1 and a general hospital, because I want them to have a strong foundation in all of those adult diseases, because I'm trying to teach them how kids are different. Right. I I think um, going somewhere where you're going to get yourself a very strong backbone in renal disease, um, hemoc, and just coming in with um, really honing those good patient skills really prepares you to do a PGY-2 in pediatrics. So 
Um, and I think a lot of people don't recognize that there are no ASHP criteria for a PGY1 in pediatrics. Even though there are PGY1s in children's hospitals, they have to meet the same criteria of administration and drug information that you have to do in a standard PGY1. So they don't really get a whole year of pediatrics that, you know, so, so the training they get is not the same. Uh -huh. um, you, you know, you can't just go to a PGY1 in a children's hospital and feel like, in my opinion, that you're prepared to just go out and tackle the world because yeah. there are, they don't have any different criteria for being a children's hospital versus an adult facility. What would you say, because I know you've been practicing in peds forever, what do you say to people or how would you direct students or pharmacists even who want to go into pediatrics right after pharmacy school? Do you think the what's the best route? Um, you know, I taught the peds elective at the University of North Carolina for a long time, and I always met with the students about residencies. And I strongly believe that a PGI-1 and an adult facility that allows you to do peds and it doesn't allow you to do four months of peds because you still need to get that critical care experience um psych yuck which i i'm <laughs> my weakness my weakness that i i actually I like psych i had so much psych at umkc yeah yes <laughs> i mean i know who to call on the phone and where to look things up but i don't yeah. it's too it moves too quickly to keep up on that so i usually tell the students that i feel like they'll get a stronger backbone and good patient care doing their pgy1 um in an adult facility now there are three or four children's hospitals in the united states that if you come out of that program what you get is so different than what somebody gets in another. And I think that was my point in saying that ASHP does not have separate criteria for a mm -hmm. PGY-1 pediatric versus adult. So it's not standardized. So I might go to one children's hospital and get a totally amazing um, experience and really team me up to do a PGY-2 in pediatrics where I don't have a lot of remedial work and I could come out of a different program and um, what what I get there is totally different. And so that's why I really feel strongly that going to an, a well-established PGY-1 is probably the best path pathway. And to go somewhere that's not going to let you do half your year in pediatrics, because part of pediatrics is learning how kids are different. Mm -hmm. So if you don't understand the adult side well, and I have to spend an hour explaining adult <laughs> renal disease to you before we can talk about pediatric renal disease, every time that comes up, in that learning day, we learn less peds because we're doing do-over adult stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I really feel like I can teach people pediatrics better if they have a strong foundation and adults. Yeah, and I think, I guess what, because the, the our audience is pretty general, but I think it's also important to restate because it's obvious for us that pediatric patients are just not little adults at all <laughs> but they're completely different which is why I think all this extra training is super important because I don't think people always understand how different pediatrics is from adults and you need to understand that. A perfect example last week our neonatal pharmacist was on vacation um, and so I had um, was covering the NICU and I had a 500 grammar down there and in the PICU with Miss C from COVID, I had a 540 pound patient. And so in wow. a given day, a pharmacist, I mean, I went from 0.5 K 
kilos to 550 pounds. And so the scope of what a pediatric pharmacist takes care of and the metabolic, um, the drug clearance and the differences in those two patients are drastic. Right. So um, having that extra training that prepares you for how you would treat those patients differently is critically important for the safety of the patient. Yeah, I think, and that's what I hope that people understand more often is how different and how more complicated pediatric patients are. Because like you were saying, just like the safety and how they metabolize drugs are completely different. That that five grammar that you we're talking about still doesn't have good renal function, right? Or hepatic function. Yeah. So they need, and all of the calculations that pediatric pharmacists do, I don't know if people who aren't pediatric pharmacists realize how much math we have to do. Every day. (laughs) Every day. Because we have to calculate everything by weight because um, obviously, as Elizabeth just demonstrated, the weights are so different. We can't do a five grammar the same dose as the 500 pounder that kind of brings me to let's well, i think just let me interrupt one moment i think oh, yeah. the other key point of that is i did have a resident who came out of a children's hospital one year that we um or i don't remember if it was a resident or a pharmacist but we hired her and she had no idea that the max dose per dose of ceftriaxone was two grams or the max dose of this because all she had done was pediatrics. And in the hospital she was in, they had mostly really small children, like more toddlers, very few adolescents. And um, you got to know when to stop as well. So even though Mm -hmm. it's per kilo, like for meningitis, we're not going to give more than two grams Q12 of ceftriaxone. And she had no idea what max doses were. And I was like, how do you not know max doses? I mean, in pharmacy school, they teach them, but you know, if you don't use it, you lose it, truly. Mm-hmm, um, truly. I think, <laughs> I think by doing, again, that um, re- residency in adult facility, you imprint those adult maxes so that when you have your smaller child who might be, you know, a five-year-old, but he's big, I'm still going to stop at the correct dose because I know what that dose is. Right. Um, now, grand, granted, some of our computer programs um, will stop us, but a perfect example of why it's not always correct. If I do a one-off of, say, clindamycin for skin and soft tissue infection, and I have a pretty big patient, a one-off, so something not in an order set, it's going to stop me at 900 milligrams because that's the max dose for like PID or other things. It's not going to say, oh, this is skin and soft tissue infection because you mm-hmm. don't know that because it wasn't in an order set, and it's not going to stop me at 600. So again, knowing that this is the max I would use for this indication is also important, which um, not everybody kind of knows that, you know, well, you can give up to this much clindamycin. I'm like, well, you don't need that much for this indication. So right. you learn all those things between a PGY-1 and an adult facility, and then hopefully it gets reinforced or imprinted when you do that PGY-2 in a children's hospital. Yeah, and I think that's why I do agree with you that it's important to get that foundation in a PGY-1 in adults. For example, for me, like when I'm in the ICU, um, obviously there's not enough guidelines and there's so little data on pediatrics. Another reason why it's really important for us to understand adults, I think, is because sometimes I think about what happens in those adult disease states and I go, well, how would this work in this pediatric patient? Could this kind of work the same way? Maybe this will be okay. Um, It's a lot of 
I don't know, sometimes research like that or just like breaking boundaries and going, wait, I think I want to try this because I know how it works in the adults. I think it will work okay in these pediatric patients. That's a perfect example because when I was um, still at the University of North Carolina, we had this large adolescent who had bad hypertension who was in the PICU. And it was right when the we were starting to see um, race-specific data for adults with hypertension and mm. the hydralazine data for adults had just come out. And we had not been able to control our hypertension. And I pulled that paper because one of our, you know, our cardiology resident had just done grand rounds on it. And I was like, wow, she's African-American. That paper showed that African-Americans do better with this drug. And we started her on it. And amazingly, her blood pressure got better. So um, I do think that you should be able to apply some of those basic principles Um, So even if she had not needed an adult dose, the fact that she was African-American, if there was something that's been shown to work better in that race than an adult, then I might try that same drug. I might be doing it a per kilo if they're smaller. But I think even now that I practice in pediatrics, I still read PSAP every year because it kind of keeps me up to date on some of the changing adult things that I might need to apply to my pediatric population same as me. I think it's great that I still am in touch with the adult stuff because I'm teaching in the curriculum and have to teach, you know, adult things every so often. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Like when there's new things with pulmonary hypertension, I'm like, oh, huh. I wonder if we can eventually like integrate that into peas or somehow like use that or things like that all the time. I think I think the other thing that you really need to come out of a PGY1, whether it's in an adult facility or a pediatric facility, um, we both have our own opinion, but I do say there are maybe four children's hospitals, maybe a few more than that, that really give their residents an awesome experience. But drug information is one of the most important skill sets for a pediatric pharmacist, because Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago, I needed to treat a patient. Um, There's nothing published. And I found six case reports And of course, note to people out there listening, if you publish a case report that said you (laughs) used the drug and it worked, please put the dose in there. It's amazing how many people publish something and there's no, I won't say the word I'm thinking, dose in the article. So um, luckily one of the papers actually had a dose and the second paper was published um, I knew the pharmacist there, the physician, um, it was a, you know, physician was the first author, but a pharmacist was on the paper who should have thought, oh, how about if we give people what dose we use? Um, and I was able to extrapolate, at least from the one case report, and then I called the other person on the phone and found out that they had used a similar dose, and we had information to treat this patient out of 12 cases that had been published in the literature. And that's not an uncommon thing that occurs in pediatrics. Um, Yeah, I I do it all the time. (laughs) Fairly uncommon. It's not like you're going to find this 5,000 patient study like you see in adults. We might have 50 and we're excited. Wow, huge study. So um, it's important to note that drug information skills are critically important to be able to evaluate that publication. And um, is it well described did they um, do what you think did the patient really fail the other things like why did they use this and I think being able to critically review those things are is a a a very important skill set for a pediatric pharmacist oh absolutely or I like I I tell my students all the time what is really important too is just being efficient because we have to go through so much literature sometimes I'm like, you need to be efficient with it as well. You need to be able to like go through it, go through it as quickly as possible and be efficient, move on, go nowhere to find your information, things like that. 
Yes. <laughs> and I think the point you made earlier about pediatric patients, even though they're more complicated and the things we have to think about to treat them, they may come in, I could have a week where none of my patients had pre-admission medications, except for maybe some vitamin D because they were breastfeeding or, you know, some cetirizine for allergic rhinitis during the pollen season. Um, but then I could have a week where when all the bad RSV started again, these patients who never should have gotten RSV, these chronic kids on ventilators at home were getting exposed because people quit wearing their masks. And I had half of the patients that were in the unit were on like 10 to 15 meds each, which is very common in an adult service, but truly less common on our pediatric services. Mm -hmm. But the variants can just from week to week and day to day um, is dramatic. So that being efficient and working up your patient, um, knowing ways to which to confirm that that's their home med or not, because um, sometimes they get flown in or driven two hours by ambulance. There's no family there to ask. And so what's what are my 12 ways, sometimes 12 ways, in mm -hmm. which I can find out um, the right thing for this patient? You know, do they, do they also go to UNC or Duke and I can do care everywhere and see a med list there? Um, do we have a recent drugstore in there and can I call them? Have they been in a long-term care facility for something and I can call and get a med list from there? So sometimes the complicated patients there's med lists from five places and they're different. And so you have to really kind of tease out what's the right, what am I going to do for my patient at this point? Right. Um, and that happens in adults as well. But I think um, adults are more likely to get most of their care in a single location. Whereas pediatrics, if you live in an area where there's not a pediatric neurologist, you might be driving two hours away to the academic medical center, or if you need a, a pediatric gastroenterologist or some specialist, a neurosurgeon. We have lots of awesome neurosurgeons where I am, but none of them will touch a very small pediatric patient. We have to send them up the road. So I think that makes pediatrics more complicated as well as they don't always get all their care where you are. And for me, I'm fortunate that recently Duke, UNC, East Carolina, all of our tertiary care centers have all now moved to Epic. And so I can go into look care everywhere mm -hmm. and at least look at, I read a clinic note because in the clinic note, the dose on the med list may still be the wrong one, but in the clinic notes, it says increased seizures have recommended to go up on the dose to this amount. And so then I have a current note from a week ago, it might even be a telephone encounter um, but sometimes I spend 30 minutes on a single patient trying to confirm that I have the right doses. And Oh, yeah. I, I think or that, how often does it happen? Because this happens to us often. It's just the dosage form is like, you know, they are saying a tablet, but this patient's actually getting like a quarter of a tablet or something like that. Or they put a tablet in because that's the stupid tablet they use to compound the liquid. Right. Way to enter the liquid. We had a kid who came in one time who somebody put in um, a 75 milligram tablet into the system. And she actually had a liquid that was compounded and somebody crushed the tablet and gave it because it got entered on a Sunday night before I came in on a Monday morning. And by the time I came in, she had already gotten five times her dose. Wow. Um, luckily, it was an anticoagulant. And luckily nothing happened to her, but it could have been a horrible misadventure. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when we worked with our Epic system to at least make sure that every liquid that we compounded our system is available for the nurse to pick from. Because at that point, we didn't have a clopidogrel liquid. Um, we, we don't see that many post-op hearts. And so we actually didn't have one. Uh, there wasn't one in the system. 
that right. the nurse, this is not commercially available. And so she picked a tablet. Um, and when it went through the system, even though she had annotated, takes a liquid that got missed by the night pharmacist. And so attention to detail is so critically important um, for every pharmacist, but this yes. is a perfect example. Even more so for pediatrics. Well, for yeah. this is just a perfect example of it was a two-year-old and somebody should have said, really, a 75 milligram tablet for a two-year-old? And that should have sparked somebody to ask some questions. Um, but I think, you know, if it's a really busy night, people miss things and we're all yeah. human. Right. Um, and which is why if you look, a lot of the misadventures and med errors, the big ones have all been in pediatrics, really. We all know about some of those big uh, pediatric misadventures and how- Well, a pediatric pharmacist would have said, there's no way a two-year-old can, one, swallow that tablet, mm-hmm. and two, would need that dose. And so we would have said, well, I don't know what the dose that is, because this is the first patient I've seen on this med, but we would have looked it up before we even verify the order and let it go out to the patient. So- um, one of the things we've um, made as a policy where I work is when you verify, and this one a port had not followed the policy, um, if you verify order for a pediatric patient, and we've recently put a 50 kilo cutoff just because a lot of our big teenagers are on adult doses, but um, you have to actually put a dose check event that said what the patient's dose is for body weight, put their body weight in there and say what reference you got it from and that it was correct. And hopefully by doing that, um, even the night pharmacist who doesn't ever see many pediatric patients can at least look it up in Lexi and see that, oh, that's supposed to be 10 per kilo. This kid's, um, you know, 20 kilos. I got a 200 milligram dose. I'm good. And they sh- and be able to go on. And that protects the patient um, by having policies in place. So even if you work in a large, like my center is a children's hospital as part of a large medical center. Ah. Uh-huh. So even though we're a standalone building, we have a central pharmacy at night that verifies everything. And so by implementing that, we've really grossly decreased the number of med errors we've had. And we've had lots of things caught by that pharmacist doing that dose check. Yeah. And I think I like I, t- I make my students get in the habit of doing the dose checks. I mean, I just think it's important for us as pediatric pharmacists to make sure we are dose checking that all the time. But it's probably even more important. I, you know, I taught the pediatric collective at University of North Carolina for 17 years. And the first day of class, we would go around the room and I would say, OK, I want everybody to tell me what your name is, where you're from and why you're taking the elective. I said, I don't care why you're taking the elective. I said, obviously, that you want to be a pediatric pharmacist. That's the best answer. I said, that, <laughs> um, I said if, but if most of you are going to go work retail and you know you're going to get pediatric prescriptions, then I'm going to try to integrate more pedi- you know, outpatient stuff into the cl- class as we go along. And I would say every year, over half the class, they were fearful about filling pediatric prescriptions. Yes. And I hope if I did my one job, I imprinted on them in that class that, if you're where you work does not have a Peds Lexi, you make sure they either buy you a book or get an online reference for you because you need to check that prescription um, to make sure. Because I said, if you fill it, you're equally as responsible as the physician who wrote it if a med error occurs. Right. I said, so you're the gatekeeper for the patient. And I think that's important for people to understand about pharmacists. We're there to protect the children and make sure they get the right thing. Yes, and we're there to understand the underlying things that make pediatric patients different and why it's so important and why we have to like watch out for all of these different things and stuff like that. 
Um, I do want to get a little bit into, like we talked about the PGY1 residencies and how um, you can have a PGY1 residency in general, or you can do a PGY1 residency in a PEDS hospital, and we can do a PGY2 residency after that and specialize in pediatrics, or you can do fellowships like we both did. But then I want to also get into board certification a little. And I know, Elizabeth, that you have done a lot to um, promote and get board certification in pediatric pharmacy established. So can you tell us a little bit about all that work you've done to get us board certified? I'm sure, Allison. I'm, I'm really passionate about board certification. I, I took the BCPS exam the third year it was offered. And of course, there were only two pediatric questions, and I didn't think either one of them had a correct answer. Um, and that's one thing people need to recognize when they take the test that the test is always six months behind if something new has come out, right? right. Um, so I had already researched once, and then um, I had been talking to um, the previous executive director um, of BPS. Every year I would see him at a meeting, whether it be ASHP, ACCP, I would go up and talk to him about how- I remember, you were pretty dogmatic. <laughs> I, he, I, I was like the dog with a bone, right? And um, <laughs> the very first meeting that Bill Ellis was the executive director, um, I saw him there and I went straight over and he tells the story that yes, Elizabeth sought me out like within minutes of me walking in the door. Um, but I just felt like, you know, BCPS was important and we were starting to get some other specialties, but PEDS is so unique and different. I mean, even within pediatrics, neonatal patients are not pediatric patients and right. they're really quite different. Um, and so I felt it was critically important because if you do that PGY1 in a children's hospital and that's all you ever do and 70% of your experience that year was more staffing and not doing clinical things, you're not the same as somebody else who did a PGY1 in a children's hospital that was very clinically focused. And so mm -hmm. you need, it's just like now everybody has a PharmD. And so board certification is important to separate the, 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 people who have extra training from those who only got a PharmD and moved on. And so board certification is there to let, like, for example, if I needed a cardiologist, I'm not going to go to a cardiologist that's not board certified, correct? Right. And, or a, a neurosurgeon or anyone, you're not going to go to a physician specialist who isn't board certified because you're going to think, well, why are they not board certified? And so I think board certification and pediatric pharmacy is very similar. It lets that pediatric provider that I'm working with on the floor or who is a community pediatrician, because they call us sometime in the children's hospital for, for questions, it lets that coworker who happens to be a physician know um, that I have extra expertise that and I'm qualified to work with them to take care of their patients. It also lets the parents know, if they see that, that, wow, I have a pharmacist that's specially trained to take care of my child. And it gives them that sense of comfort. Mm -hmm. um, I also feel like that extra education you have to do to maintain your certification keeps you, I mean. Can you reiterate what that? Is this so? Um, yes, good question. Um, we're, we're a lot of people are listening who aren't in on this. So, um, BCPS is one of the few that's still 120 hours. I think as they got more and more of the specialties, um, some of the newer ones were 100. So, pediatrics is 100, which means in your seven year cycle, uh, you know, you take the exam and you have to recertify every seven years. Um, well, you don't have to, but 
we would encourage you to do so. <laughs> um, but so you have to have 100 hours of PEDS specific continuing education within that seven year cycle. Um, so that may make someone who got board certified that you don't want someone to get board certified. They study there and study and study and pass and then do nothing. Right. Because then the credential doesn't mean anything. You're not certain that they're still at the specialty level that they passed the exam for. And you can either take the exam again and you get half of the questions. Um, please, if I once I pass, I'm never taking the test again. But I have lots Same. of colleagues who are BCPS who have taken the exam three times. And wow. that's their choice. Um, so you can either sit for the exam and if you're a research, it randomly gives you half the questions. Or you can get your 100 hours of continuing education. And the Board of Pharmaceutical Specialties is very strict about who they approve. You have to, um, associations have to send in a proposal of what they're proposing to provide for a specialty in pharmacy and then how they're going to maintain the um, quality of that program. And then they get um, every couple of years, somebody reviews those programs. So I feel pretty confident whether I get that continuing education through the Pediatric Pharmacy Association or PPA, the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, which would be ACCP, or ASHP, the American Society of Health System Pharmacy, because pediatrics was one of the first exams that actually got three providers. Um, critical care has two the American College of Clinical Pharmacy and the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And I think later, um, maybe, um, so some of them only have one or two providers and it's a matter of who feels confident that they can provide, meet all the criteria that BPS requires of them to provide that CE. So you know you're getting CE that's been written by a qualified person. Um, you have to be, um, you don't have to be BPS certified to write, but you have to be BPS certified to review. Um, and that's only because somebody might be at, just have missed the window to take the exam. They would prefer you to be both, um, but you don't have to be, the reviewers have to be BPS certified. Can um, people get BC board certified in pediatric pharmacy and have not done a residency? That's an excellent question. So, um, there's three pathways. And as we talked about, we spent a lot of time at the specialty council level. Since there are no ASHP criteria for a PGY1 in pediatrics, you can't consider that a pediatric experience. And so as, if you did a PGY1 anywhere, you then have to have X amount of years. I think it's two. I, looked, I should have looked at it before our little podcast, sorry. Um, a year's a pediatric experience. If you do a PGY-1 anywhere and then a PGY-2 in a, in a children's facility or an adult facility, because my program was at the University of North Carolina, it's a, a large academic medical center that happens to have children. So just qualify, completing a PGY-2 in pediatrics qualifies you to sit for the exam. If you've never done a residency at all, um, five years of work experience take, filled with 50% of your time taking care of children, which you have to be able to document that that's your job um, description, um, qualifies you to sit for an exam. And that's true for any, uh, almost all of the subspecialty exams. That so like a staff pharmacist in a pediatric hospital, that would count as a pediatric experience? If they have five years of work experience. Now, if mm -hmm. all they ever did was sit on the counter and verify an order, 
they might not be able to pass the exam because there's a lot of clinical questions on the exam. But what if they came in as a staff pharmacist and then they got moved to a satellite and then they got mentored along the way and they've really picked up a lot of clinical experience, they may be completely qualified to take the exam and pass it. The intent of the exam is to separate the people who work in a children's hospital and all they ever do is verify and order or check product on the counter from the people who have more clinical experience because that's what the board certification is really a clinical designation. Mm-hmm. But you don't wanna penalize someone because when they first got out of pharmacy school, they had a lot of student debt or their parents were ill or it just wasn't the time in their life that they could do a residency. And actually the pharmacist currently, I think it's still true that has, has the highest score on the BCPS exam was a pharmacist who never did a residency that has work experience that um, they worked for like 20 years and moved up to the cardiology floor and was a cardiology pharmacist. And I think um, I think that was still true. I don't know if anybody has surpassed her score. Um, so this proves to you that you don't have to do a residency. Um, work experience counts for a lot, but you know they generally say one year of residency is worth you know two to three years of work experience, which is why a one plus one, you're kind of looking at a five to six years. And that's why we say five years of work experience to kind of equal mm-hmm. that one plus one. What would you say to people who, who might ask why they feel you should get board certified in pediatric pharmacy or why it's important? I think it's critically important for two reasons. The first one I talked about was to to, um, differentiate ourselves from all the other pharmacists out there and to have our colleagues that we're working with have that respect for us that they're board certified in pediatrics and I'm board certified in pediatrics and we're a team. So I think it lets them show that you have the specialty knowledge that you, you should be joining their team. Um, but I think even more importantly, um, yeah, the fact that you really have to then maintain that expertise and learn. I mean, anybody who thinks they're going to finish pharmacy school, honestly, and you're done, but they are so confused. And I think as a student, <laughs> when I got out of pharmacy school, I thought I'm done. But you know, I learned something new almost every day. There's always something somebody asked me and I'm like, I really have no idea. Let me look that up for you. Maybe, maybe not every day, but at least once a week. Yes. So I think pharmacy is like a continual learning continuum. New drugs come out all the time. New diseases were in a pandemic. I mean, there's always something that nobody taught me in school that I have to learn on my own. I don't know if that answered your question. Yes, I think so. I think it's just, um, you know, pointing out that it's important for people to understand why board certification is important and that you have a pathway to do board certification, even if you didn't do a residency. So that's always still an option. It's a good way, I think, for people who like maybe transitioning into or trying to transition into different careers. Like if they're like, oh, I want to move into peas. I don't know how. Well, if you decided you got some experience in pediatrics and were able to sit for the board, the board certification, I think that shows a different pathway, a different way to get there. Well, the other important thing to note is all three of the societies that currently provide BCPSCE offer a review course. Now, it's also really important to know that they have no idea what's on the exam. So review courses are um, offered based on the 
blueprint of what should be on the exam. And really the whole purpose of the review course is for you to go and to listen and learn. And you're like, oh my God, I was so lost in these two. So I'm going to spend more time studying these. I really knew all that stuff. So I can spend less time studying on that. Review courses are kind of to give you an idea of where you are, but they're in no way guarantee. Because um, I've heard people say that before. Well, I took so-and-so's review course and I didn't pass. Well, the review course is to really prepare you for what else you need to study, right. um, where your holes are. Um, and since none of the national societies have any idea what the questions are going to be on the test, um, they can't, you know, like spoon feed you. And also, if you are on a specialty council, you cannot teach in a review course for at least two to three years after you come off because you have seen a lot of the questions mm -hmm. and you could unintentionally kind of teach to some questions you have seen. So th they really try to keep the integrity of the exam by making sure people who are on specialty councils can't teach and review courses and vice versa. Good. I think that's also very important to note. I just It just shows that you have those added qualifications for anyone to prove that, yes, I have that knowledge base. I'm an expert. I can be considered an expert in pediatric pharmacy. Obviously, I think pediatrics is the most important specialty out there because I'm a pediatric pharmacy. <laughs> Same. A perfect example of where board certification has become critical is the organ transplant group. To become a certified organ transplant center, you can no longer do that unless you have a board certified organ transplant pharmacist on your team. So that organization um, acknowledged that those centers that had a pharmacist practicing on their team had better transplant outcomes. And they made it a criteria that to be recertified, you actually had to have a pharmacist on your team and that pharmacist needed to be board certified in transplant pharmacy. I think the first year there was a window because it was a fairly mm -hmm. new exam and they gave them a window to get board certified. But that just shows you that other organizations have acknowledged the importance of board certification and how it, it demonstrated to them that that pharmacist has the expertise I want on my team. Yeah. And Do you think that's there. ever something that could happen in pediatrics? I don't know that we have that same similar type of pediatrics. Truly, in a given week, I can have 18 different diseases. I mean, in a given day, I, you know, if I only had 17 patients, I could have no repeaters. So I think pediatrics, um, perhaps neonatology, I could see it happening. Um, currently, there isn't a specialty exam um, in neonatology. There's been discussion and at the board BPS level, um, once we have, let's say, a pediatric exam, should there later be the ability to get a subspecialty exam of a smaller number of questions for neonatology? So you're board certified in neonatology, because I think that's such a small subspecialty. I could see perhaps that would allow for board certification, and I could see where that would allow for better outcomes, because they see that they have, you know, 10 diseases and well, five diseases and 10 drugs, maybe. That's a yes. little exaggeration. It's <laughs> so much smaller. I mean, students feel comfortable there very quickly because, you know, if they have 20 patients, they all have the same thing. They're premature. Now, granted, one may have a meconium aspiration and one may have, a, a, you know, a PDA. There's some, there's differences, but there's a lot of repetition. And so you can get really uh, become an expert in that, that really small patient. That's one place I can see where, um, to be a level three certified unit and mm -hmm. that they would say that you have to have a pharmacist on your team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I think general peds is a little bit harder. I can see maybe even in the ICU, if there was ever a PICU, but you know, there's cardiac ICU, there's surgery ICU, there's general ICUs, like where I was at the University of North Carolina. We had post-op hearts, we had traumas, we had surgeries, and we had just sepsis. So ours was a mixed unit. So um, I think units vary so much across the nation. PICU would be a little bit harder. Um, or you would have to say you need to be able to pass the exam on all subspecialties of pediatric mm -hmm. ICU care to become board sort of a subspecialty in PICU. But I could see that occurring. Yeah. I mean, I think if that ever happened, I think that would be awesome as well. I think that maybe when I retire, I can work on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I gotta have something to work on, right? <laughs> you have so much on your plate already. <laughs> you might need to like wait for a little while. <laughs> Uh, that it's been great talking to you, Elizabeth. Did you, do we have any other comments on pediatrics? Um, I don't think. I just think we need to just think hard that these are our most vulnerable patients. It's. I think it's really critically important that pediatric pharmacists be willing to take a pharmacy student or a pharmacy resident. Uh, a lot of them think, "Oh, I'm not qualified." But you know, I learned from someone showing me. Um, and then somebody making me look stuff up, some of the things somebody made me look up, I remember still to this day. So I think the other important thing, whether you're a board certified pharmacist or not, it's critically important that pharmacists be willing to take pharmacy students. Um, and what if you work in a children's hospital and there's a PGY1 program across the road that doesn't have pediatrics? If there's a resident there that wants a pediatric experience, please say that you're willing to take them and come up with an experience for that resident because that's going to spark that person to then maybe want to go into pediatrics in the future. So I think part of our role as pediatric pharmacists is not only to take care of our smallest patient, but to inspire the young pharmacist of the future to want to be what we are or to oh, do yeah. what we do. Because that just reminded me, we need more pediatric pharmacists for sure. I mean, I feel like... Uh, as you said, they're the most vulnerable population. They're still make up about 20% of our population. They're the most complicated. We need people who are comfortable taking care of pediatric patients and who are detail oriented and who, you know, like, I think the challenge, that's one of the things I like about pediatrics. It's a challenge. Challenge. I think it's so challenging. It's so rewarding and interesting. I like that I do things that aren't just like by by the book and by protocol and by guidelines. I like thinking outside the box a lot. Well, I think another perfect example is there's pediatric diseases that you're never going to see in an adult, even if that right. child grows into an adulthood. Perfect example, Kawasaki. It occurs in children less than five. It's a very unique disease. It's unique to pediatrics. It's more unique to Asian Americans. So even knowing the differences there, um, it's really kind of funny as I talk to my students, like boys always do worse than girls and almost every pediatric disease, and we don't know why. Um, perhaps in pulmonary diseases, yes, why? Because their lungs develop at a slower rate than little girl lungs. But then Miss C is a perfect example. People keep saying, oh, children don't get very bad COVID. Well, oh, they may yeah. not have That's been not very true. sick with their COVID at home, but now they're in my ICU in heart failure because they have multi-inflammatory syndrome of COVID. So, and there's been a few case reports. Now they're calling it Miss A, what? But there's been very few, but there's been a lot of Miss C. I even had a child, um, he was a 14-year-old strapping football player who was on an LVAD 
for like mm. three days because of the amount of um, heart failure he went into from the inflammation from having COVID. So I think pediatric patients are not also vulnerable. They need stuff per kilo, but they have very unique diseases sometimes. You know, our, our renal disease, if you look at glomerular nephritis, some of the ones we see are very unique to pediatric patients. You mm-hmm. get nephrotic syndrome and glomerular nephritis in childhood. Yes, it moves into adulthood, and then the adult nephrologists have to deal with their renal failure, but um, we get hemolytic uremic syndrome from- Or cystic fibrosis. I mean- I mean, cystic fibrosis patients, the average age now is 46, or our adult- Right, our, they have to learn it now. to learn how to take care of cystic <laughs> fibrosis, and they've had to learn to take care of congenital heart disease, because we've done such a good job of transitioning these children into adulthood, but some- Pediatric centers still take those patients up to about age 25 because the adults don't know how to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Another perfect example is um, osteogenic sarcoma. It's a childhood disease, and usually you can get it up until your mid-20s. Most people who get osteogenic sarcoma in their 20s get sent to a children's hospital to get treated because that's where the better outcomes are because it's really a pediatric disease, a Wilms tumor. You don't see Wilms tumors at all. So we have different cancers. Our leukemia is so much more responsive. We have very good risk factors of who's going to do good and bad. And 90% of medium to low risk leukemic patients are cured. That's not true for adult leukemia. So not only do we have different diseases, but we have the same disease, perhaps, leukemia, leukemia, ALL, and our responses are totally different. And if you're a pharmacist who does pediatric oncology, you need to know those differences. You can't just be an adult pharmacist that went to a dental oncology residency, and now I'm going to stick you over in the children's hospital because you might have never seen six, six to seven of those cancer types in your specialty oncology program. So I think there's just so many reasons why um, training and a PGY2 in pediatrics that makes you do all the programs. So for those students and residents listening on the call today, when you're looking for a pediatric program, don't look for a program that is kind of little. I had a resident who came in one year and he goes, I'm never going to do oncology. He really wanted to do critical care. That's why a lot of people came to my program because that was my specialty. And I said to him, you're assuming you're not going to get somebody from the bone marrow unit who crashes and burns and comes over, or you're not going to get a new diagnosis, ALL, an acute tumor lysis, or you're not going to, and he goes, okay, point taken. So he did his month in oncology and he said, thank you for making me do that because now I'm better prepared when that patient comes into my unit. So just because I love critical care, people with all those renal diseases are gonna come in. You have to make that resident do a month of nephrology. They have to do a month of oncology. You know, So if you let them do too much subspecialty within that program, um, they're not gonna be as well around. a little, yeah. Yeah, so um, for people on the call listening, you wanna look for a well-rounded program. I mean, they might make you do two months in the NICU and two months in the PICU because the learning there is a little bit more specialized, but you want to make sure that it's a well-rounded and makes you do a lot of different things. Um, I, don't I, know, concur. I, think that's I agree just, with that totally. I just think the, the more experiences you have, the better. Right. Instead of trying to like keep taking the same experience over and over again, it's just the variety 
helps you so much? Well, autoimmune disease, all of a sudden that patient with lupus is in my unit, you know, with lupus nephritis that, and they're in, and they were wanting to start some cyclophosphamide. Thank God. I know that's the treat, you know, like, but if I had never done that month of nephrology and learn, Oh, lupus nephritis, this is the treatment. And this is the dose per meter squared. I might not see it again for a couple of years, but you know, that hopefully it's in my RAM. And then when it, (laughs) when it occurs, I can pull it back out. Um, or at least I remember being exposed to it and I know who to call on the phone or where to look it up. So, or how to do a good lip search to see if there's something yes. new. <laughs> I said was one of the incredibly important um, um, skill sets. I think I, I think all pharmacists need that skill set, but it's even more important, I think, for a pediatric pharmacist. Because absolutely, there's a dearth of information in some of our areas. Great. How about we leave this call with you just telling me what you love the most about pediatrics? Me, oh, some days I just get to play with my patients. Like last Halloween, when we got one of them dressed up like a shark and he was in the hall doing baby shark. When he first came in, he was so lethargic and he was malnourished. He couldn't have even, he didn't respond to anybody. He was afraid for people to touch him. So sometimes watching those children get better, 90% of our children get better and go home. The ones we lose, it's really typically a blessing. And I love to see children when they are acting like kids again. And, you know, sometimes we get to play while we're at work. We get to see those little smiles and it just is heartwarming. Mm-hmm. So I think that's my favorite part of taking care of sick children. And mm-hmm. I think my favorite part of teaching is when I can inspire a pharmacist to want to go do a PEDS residency. That's always fun for me, too. How yes. about yourself? Um, definitely. I do agree. I love What I love about, I think, pediatrics is the optimism always there. Oh, I agree. It's always a positive atmosphere. The people you work with are always super positive. If you walk into a pediatric hospital, it's usually a very happy place. It's always a very happy place. You walk into an adult hospital, it usually, usually looks fairly grim. But a pediatric hospital is bright, happy, and the people are almost always happy in general. And I think even the people who work in peds are always much more positive and more willing to go above and beyond all the time. And that's how I feel too. I'm always willing to go above and beyond. And I try to teach my students that as well, is that, you know, you should be doing your utmost for these patients. And I always feel that that's how the atmosphere is. In I think that's really important. When I taught the peds elective at the University of North Carolina, one of the pieces of my class that they got a grade on it was like 10 percent of their grade as a group I, I broke them into little groups they had to come up with an activity to do in the playroom at the children's hospital and after they did their activity they had to write a paper on what did they learn from interacting with sick patients and every year I would say 90 percent of those papers were like how oh, these children come in and they're like, they have no hair from oncology. They're hooked to three IV poles and they're just tearing around playing like a normal child. Right. And I think um, that's another positive thing. Not only are all the people who take care of them, like a ped surgeon is so much different than a regular surgeon. Oh, yes. I mean, you just hear all those comments all the time, but the children sometimes don't even really seem to think that they're really that sick. You know, like they're they're just still once they feel better, they're ready to play. And we all have child life systems in our hospital. We mm-hmm. have 
Um, in Wilmington, example, PetSmart around the holidays, you can buy a stuffed animal. And they like, I was um, on the crew near at the one near my house. I said, I'll pick them up and bring them in, you know, and I was thousands of stuffed animals I must have brought into the hospital. And then when you see them handed out, some of those kids, it's the first stuffed animal they've ever had because it's brought in from one of those family situations that either it's just a bad family situation or their money is so strapped that they do everything they can for that child, but they don't have a lot of extras. And so seeing those children, sometimes just the services we can provide for them. And then we all have caseworkers and social workers that not are just trying to get them home health care, but they're trying to get them into special services and, or do we need to get transportation so they can get to the pediatrician? I just think that people are there and they are just so caring and wanting to make mm -hmm. sure that no child falls through the trap, through the um, cracks. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that people who choose to work in a children's hospital or with children are just a special breed. And we do it because we love children. Absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> I think that we should leave on such a positive note like that. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Chung. <laughs> That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review.